Welcome to Life First Down Hill. This is one of your hosts, Kurt Flagel, and this is your other host, Kim Ward. And we just want to welcome you to the show tonight. We're excited. We have uh, some, we're doing something a little different. We usually re-record ahead of time and broadcast, and if we do live, it's Kim and I. But tonight, we have a special guest here live in the studio with us, and this is Tom Young, and we're going to hear his story in just a moment, a story that has a lot of brokenness in it, as Tom is going to share with you, but also a lot of healing along the journey up to this point and more to come. And so I'm excited because we get to hear his story. I just love people's stories. And we get to hear our story of, with, in our relationship with God and how he's healing us as Tom shares his story. So, yeah, let's get started in welcoming Tom. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's really exciting um, for me because I don't really know you. You know, and Kim doesn't really know you. This is uh, a mutual friend who we had on a few a few weeks ago. Uh, I think it was like four episodes ago, something like that. Something like that. That we had Steve Joyce. Right. And his story was really a story of coming out of, depression and abuse and uh, discovering God's joy and really receiving and accepting that, you know? And so he referred you to us, which is really cool. It was really cool. How, how do you, uh, how did you, how do you know uh, Steve? I know his wife. Uh, she worked at Coastal Peaks as the manager. Oh, the coffee shop. Kim, yes. Yep. And uh, a couple times I went down to the little Pearl Chapel oh, yeah. there in uh, Shell Beach, I think it is. Yeah, Shell Beach. And I just got to know Steve, and he stopped in one day and uh, said he had shared his testimony on a podcast and said, hey, Tom, would you like to do it? Mm-hmm. And I said, sure. Inside, I was like, well, but I knew I had to do it. So let's just put it that way. Well. Thank you for being bold enough to just step out there and, and try this out. So, yeah, on that, just talking about your story, what, uh, what are some of your early, earliest memories of, of, you know, like those moments for us where we go from that innocent, um, just that innocent childhood and childlike experience to be touched by the brokenness of the world and it beginning to break us. Do you, do you have any memories that you're like, that was a defining moment, you know, of pain or woundedness and brokenness in your life that affected you? Um, probably when I used to see my dad uh, beat up my mom. That was real you know i remember one time he was hung over and she brought him in a bowl of soup and it was too hot and he threw it at her and she ran into the bathroom and slipped and fell in the tub and he stood on her head and i jumped on his back and started pounding on him and uh, i think that probably affected me in a way that was not a positive thing uh just yeah. you know and then he would do that to me and my brother here and there so that that was uh 
that was hard. How old were you when that happened? Uh, probably six, seven, wow. five, seeing the police show up and haul my dad off and just, yeah, that was, that wasn't good. Did your mom and your father and mother stay together? My mom tried to for a while, but when she had had enough, we had an apartment that we had built and we were the managers. She divorced and then we got our house in Studio City and he moved to Las Vegas. And uh, so, yeah, and, you know, later on I went and saw him and he was a broken, he was broken and he was a believer and I don't know if he had a relationship with God. I know he believed there was a God up there. Mm -hmm. But in the end, he died alone without his family. And he, my mom was the greatest. And he lost everything behind alcohol, hard alcohol. Mm -hmm. So that was tough. Did your mom remarry? No, she didn't. Although... In the 40s, she was a secretary for uh, a president of Pierce Brothers. And later on, Paul, Paul Hoquist, he was a World War II veteran under General Patton. He began to treat my mom the way she deserved to be treated. He was like a father to me. And, uh, you know, I had another brother, too, my brother Charlie, who passed away of liver cancer and uh, cirrhosis of the liver. Wow. So then it just ended up with me and my half-brother. But, you know, it's Paul was a great guy. What, how old were you when your mom did uh, a relationship with Paul? Probably when they divorced. I was 12 when we moved into the house in Studio City. And then Paul, she was working for Pierce Brothers, and he was still president. She was the, his personal secretary. And then they just started, would go out to eat, take me with them, you know, or my other brother. And, and he was just a good old guy. So, yeah, they, it was nice to see my mom treated the way she deserved to be treated. That's cool. Yeah. Studio City, where is that? That's uh, two blocks down from Universal Studios, just on the one side of the Hollywood Hills. Greatest place to grow up in the 1970s for a kid, I'll tell you. Why is that? Universal Studios. Down there. <laughs> right there. We used to take the family dog and go down by the L.A. River and jump the fence and sneak around the prop houses, and they'd chase us around. And then when they'd catch us, they would just let us out. And we'd go back another day. So it was like fun and games, but they didn't care. It was it was fun. That's cool. Yeah. And they did a lot of filming around there, you know, the Rockford Files. And I got to meet Fonzie lived on our street, Henry Winkler. Wow. And I used to go there, uh, you know, at Christmas and different take my kids up on the front lawn and talk to Henry, real nice guy. So it was fun. It was a fun place to live. That's crazy. Yeah. So you you mentioned like so one of the defining moments for your pain was this this the abuse right from your father. 
And, you know, that's definitely, you know, a shattering of our innocence, right, when things mm-hmm. like that happen. And what did that lead, that kind of brokenness that your father introduced into your life often leads us to try to cope with it in ways where we end up pursuing our own brokenness. You know, like your dad brings brokenness into your life and you're trying to make heal yourself, which usually means we find some other coping mechanism, which eventually, if it isn't God, leads to more brokenness in us. So what were the ways for you like that with this hurt and pain that your father introduced as one of the major um, areas of brokenness in your life, what were some of the coping mechanisms? What did you turn to to feel better about that, about that pain, those wounds, you know, those father wounds? Well, there's something that I've looked back on that I question and I wondered about that this is kind of a subject that I don't even know if I, but there was some things that I saw and I don't know if this would be considered something, but I was already trying to have sex at nine years old. Wow. So when I think about that, I, I think about why would a nine-year-old boy that would be doing these things be interested, and there was a girl, a neighbor, and we'd attempted that, but I thought, why was I interested in that at that age? What, you know, when I look back at that, where you should be playing with trucks, where did that come from? But there were some things that I had seen at that age. And I don't know, I mean, I wasn't using any kind of drugs. At night or, so if I'm trying to think of something that I would cope with, with that or fix something, I don't know. I mean, but it's hard. I, I thought about that. Yeah, right. Well, we were talking, you know, beforehand, and I mentioned, you know, that I I got caught up in the pornography at the age of 10 or 11 from, you know, this this construction site, right? These guys were, uh, they, they were uh, cre- creating a highway right next to the house I grew up in. So all these construction guys were, you know, working on blowing up this hill to turn it into a highway. You know, they were in these massive trucks that I wanted to climb on. Right. But, you know, they were leaving their porn mags all over the place. This is back in, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And, and they would go climbing on all these tracks and all these huge, you know, cranes and plows and everything like that and dump trucks and find their magazines and start looking at this stuff. And, you know, at first it's this curiosity of a kid of what is this? This is not something, you know, like there's a, there's a natural curiosity of a child. But there's also then where it meets a need that I have, or I think it meets a need that I have, that I didn't get from my father, which was intimacy. Mm, yeah. Right? There's this father wound of, for me, of like at the time where my, my dad worked all the time. He, he like, he was my parents divorced when I was just like around seven or eight years old. And, and my dad got custody because my mom was not well. 
And, you know, in fact, one of the, the things that really caused the divorce to happen was she attempted suicide. She jumped off of an overpass onto the freeway in the newspapers the next day. I'm like, I'm in first grade going to school and all the kids are talking about my mom jumping off, you know, jumping onto the freeway from an overpass. And my dad is telling us that she fell because he's trying to protect us, not realizing I'm going to go to school the next day. And this has been in the newspapers and it's going to say in the newspaper, right, that she jumped. And so now I'm getting in a fight because I'm backing up my dad's lie, you know, and, but all of that brokenness, my dad that started with my mom and that divorce, well, he had to work, right? And now we're left all alone and he's working all the time to try to make ends meet. And there's just this hole, you know, in me from, you know, the abandonment of my mother, my dad not being around, there's no sense of intimacy the people that should have known me the most, who should have loved me and showed me, you know, that they knew me and cared for me for who I was, that was not a reality. And so pornography, sex, that um, offered an illusion of intimacy that I was missing. And maybe, you know, maybe that's similar to like a nine-year-old, you know, curious about sex, and, and yet there's a, another deeper desire of, for intimacy that's lacking, not having a dad to love you and say, Tom, I know you, and I love you for who you are. Uh, I can resonate with that completely. My dad was a maniac, and he didn't show love. To, I, don't, I can't ever remember him just telling me, Tom, I love you. I, don't, I can't. My mom, yes. She would get down by our beds and pray on her knees. Mm. My dad was not a father figure at all. Mm. You know, not someone to go with and have fun or go to a baseball game or any of that stuff. He was a chronic alcoholic and whiskey was his choice drink. Mm. You know, and we had an apartment, we had a gas station, we were going to get a Taco Bell. So we were doing, he lost everything, wrecked the cars, just, you know, we were, and he just destroyed the family. Do you think that the pattern of his addictions, like, you know, we we have, our parents are a role model. Do you think that that became... He set a pattern for you that you ended up following inadvertently in your life in some ways? Well, I'm going to have to say I've thought about that a lot. And, yes, I can see a lot of his traits as far as addictive personality type thing and the lustful kind of thing. He was that. He would be very crude in his language. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I'm crude in mine like that, but it's just that type of thing, you know. So I can actually see some of that in me as far as addictive behaviors, and especially years back. Yeah, like what happened? Tell us about that. Like, what? How did that end up um, showing itself in your life? Those addictive behaviors. What happened to you? Thirteen years old, I started smoking pot. How did that come about? Just 
just being in school and meeting people. But then as time went on, that graduated to angel dust. And I don't know if you know, you're familiar with that, but that's a whole... No, angel dust is PCP. PCP. Yeah, and it's, you could get it on the mint leaves, and, and it was a completely... And people loved it. And then we began to sell it and make good money, not when I was 13, but as time went on. So you weren't selling at 13? <laughs> no, 14. Oh. <laughs> but uh, one thing led to another, and that's not the only types of things I've tried. But that started at 13 years old. And alcohol came to just a combination of stuff. And then, uh, you know, as time went on, it was about jail here and there, the city jails, and I got a pretty checkered past all the way through. What, like, what kind of things were you getting into, and uh, that caused you to to get in trouble with the law? Like, what were the things you were doing? Well, if I'm going to be completely honest, please, as <laughs> I got into heroin and cocaine and things like that. I became a thief and to a liar. To like meet the need? To meet the need. Mm. Thief, liar. You know, I've been in high-speed chases, if you want to know the truth. Yeah. Um, you know, I've taken mo money out of my mom's purse. The best mom in the world. Mm. And when I look back on that, uh, anyway, it's... A lot of stuff, you know, and then I ended up with a, a girl when I was in my 20s and she was in, she was probably 19 or 20 and we had two daughters and we never got married and then she became a drug addict mm -hmm. and she just went off the deep end and finally we separated and then we get closer to me going to prison. But I had been in prison before the actual time I got the long-term prison. I had been in once, but I had been in L.A. County Jail and all the county facilities over and over and over again. Was that all like theft-related Theft, theft petty theft, car theft, uh, drugs, selling drugs, you know, yeah. Was this, were you, was this with a group of friends by yourself, with your brothers? Like Had friends. Friends, had friends, and we were actually good at what we did. So, yeah. And they were all selling drugs. We were all doing... We had a... We, we called ourselves the boys. <laughs> yeah, like that song, yeah. But I had a lot of good times with them, too. They weren't all, you know... That we had morals, I mean, but you just caught up in the drugs and everything goes out the window. I'm not going to say they were evil, and I'm not going to say I was. I was a drug addict. You know, I was a drug addict doing what I needed to do to get my drugs. You know, and I tried working, and I worked here and there, here and there, but I couldn't hold a job very long. So it was... And, the, you know, what's funny is the final thing that led up to me getting 14 years at 
which is 11 years, 11 months, was for attempted armed robbery, which I didn't do. The very crime that sent me to jail for that length of time, I didn't do. And it seemed like all the other times that I had appeared in court, it seemed like I would always get away and just get a little bit of time and sometimes walk. And then it's funny that when this certain crime that I didn't do, I end up losing in a jury trial. They offered me six years and I turned the deal down because I didn't do the crime. And they said, well, if you lose this trial, you're going to get 14 years. And I didn't even believe that. And I read that because of all the other, because of my past. All the other times where you got off. Well, yeah, and they could see this pattern. So they really wanted to make an example and sock it to me and basically get me off the street. And there's a pivotal, you know, all through all those times, and let me just back up a little bit. When I was in my early 20s, a friend that I grew up with, before I moved to Studio City, Jimmy Hurst, he stopped by my house and he had become a Christian. And I said a prayer with him. And... All I can say is, is I don't know if I was born again at that time because of my life, but I do know there was a certain time in my life that my kid's mother cheated on me and I was laying in the bed at my house in Studio City and I was probably in my 30s and I didn't want to live and I contemplated. I just didn't want to live. And I felt the lowest I had ever felt, the lowest I had ever felt. And I was laying on my bed and the Lord was the last thing I was thinking of. I was in despair. And the warmest feeling came over me and I remember it like it was yesterday. And it sort of started in my midsection and then engulfed me. And I believe that it was God's love just engulfing me. And I remember this sort of poured out of me. And I just started saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. It just poured out of my heart. It wasn't something I was even thinking in my mind. You know, so. Was that that after you said that prayer? That was after I said that prayer. Now, I've asked God, like, Lord, was I saved? And when was I saved? And. You know, and and like I told you, when I was in prison and the correctional guard said to me, Tom, are you being obedient to God's word? I remember walking to my bunk. I was on the upper bunk and I leaned over and closed my eyes and I said, Lord, I'll be obedient. And Lord, I want to know if I'm saved. Because even though I had experienced that overwhelming love, I call it, Still, I was doubting because to me, I wasn't seeing fruit. Even after that, I'd still been unsurrendered and in that sort of drug pattern. But it wasn't too long after that is when I actually got in this trouble. And then I got sentenced to the 14 years, a couple of years after. So I had a lot of questions because I would think, well, was I born again back then? And there's a girl that I know and she knows my story well. And she thinks I was. She thinks that God was giving me what I needed at the time when I was laying on that bed. But this is what I will say. I've never experienced anything like that since. And 
it was the most real thing. And I do know this too, that when that was over, I felt clean and I felt refreshed and my mind was clear of those thoughts of suicide and all that. And all I could do was thank the Lord. But it wasn't that long after that, that that, but you know, then when I look at prison and I ask myself, well, why did I, I get so much time for a crime that I, I didn't commit. And I'm not going to say God put me in prison. What I was doing that led up to all this put me in prison. But God decided to use that for my good. He had a plan for that. And he's the one halfway through my prison sentence, which I was still smoking a little pot in prison because they had it all. And I was reading the Bible at the same time. But that was a pivotal moment when that correctional officer asked me, Tom, are you being obedient to God's word? And when I surrendered and began to be obedient, everything changed for me. How long into the prison sentence? You said it was it was a 14-year sentence, but you were going to serve 85% of that, 11 years, 11 months. And so how long into the prison sentence did you have that encounter with that guard? Exactly halfway through. What was... Uh, what was the time before that like? You said you were reading your Bible at times before in the first six years or so? Well, for years when I had been in out of jail, I had always got a little Gideon pocket Bible, and that's what I did. It was almost like a place to get away, and I could read the Word. But in that, I was living in cells then for the first four years, so... In the cell, it was almost like a hotel room. They were pretty big. They were clean. We had all our munchies. You could get packages. <laughs> I had a 13-inch TV with a remote control, uh, you know, and so I kind of had it made in the cell for prison. So for the first four years, it was pretty comfortable. It was pretty comfortable, but then you're thrust into dorm living, which there's a lot of disrespect, people playing, you know, it's not like you can have privacy. Why did it change? Like, why was it that way for four years in this kind of hotel living, and then why did it move to... Because you start out with an armed robbery or attempted armed robbery with a gun. You're a, a level four. You got 58 points. But then as you go along, every year you get a review, they see how your behavior's been. Well, I was actually a model prisoner. They thanked me for my... I had no write-ups, nothing. So every year I get four points. So your level goes down. And then to them, you're more trustworthy. And then you can be out in the population, whether they want to know where you're locked down in a cell for the night and we don't have to deal. And then in the very end, I ended up, this was probably the highlight of my prison time, that last six, so that, First six years, I was still smoking pot and doing that here and there, reading my word, underlining, highlighting scriptures that sounded good, but they really didn't, it's, I was just sort of going through motions. Mm. Then when I got to CMC and I began to be obedient, really seek God and get on my knees every morning at my bunk, not caring about who around me, these hardcore saw me doing I just did it. 
And it was like the scriptures opened up. It was like there was a veil taken off. And it all started with the correctional officer saying, Tom, are you being obedient at CMC? Okay, so what was his name? Like, C.O. Cook. And, and he just approached you just out of the – he just walked up to you and said this to you? Well, we started having small talk here, here and there, but I noticed his demeanor. He was always smiling. He was very gentle. He was very soft-spoken, and he did not harass the inmates or tear up their lockers because they got to do locker searches to make sure there was something different about him. And he and and one thing I want to say is they're not supposed to befriend inmates or offer anything or even small talk. And he began to talk to me, and I began to talk to him, and I noticed there was something different about him. And then we started talking about the Lord. And then one day we were talking about the Lord, and then I knew he was a Christian, and he knew I was a believer. But there was a few things I was a little bit con a little bit confused on, like I was had met a guy, he was a Filipino guy in Avenal, and he had Yahweh on his hat. But he was going through these rituals and kind of got me in there with him, and we were, you know, not eating pork on this day and doing all this stuff and. You know, because I was still smoking a little bit of weed then, so I was easy to confuse, and I was, you know, and so as I got to talking to C.O. Cook, he kind of brought me back down to earth a little bit and just kind of mentored me a little bit, and uh, he started bringing me books by Merlin Crothers that I was feeding on and just different things, and we would sit in the office and have talks, you know, and he he knew God had called him to do that. He knew that the Lord was in this, and that's why he didn't really worry about talking to me and, yeah. and nothing. He, he he was that was a God arranged meeting. Even me being at CMC, I'll say this: I was at Avenal, and they weren't doing any transfers or any hardships. Meaning, you got a family member that's real sick, and you want to get closer to them so they can come. They weren't even doing those, and I put in for one because my mom had dementia, and I got that hardship. And where did I end up? CMC with C.O. Cook and all the other brothers that I met in Hosanna Chapel that helped me grow, that I actually loved like brothers, which I had never experienced from different races. And Hosanna Chapel, the the inmate bands, boy, what worship. I It, it was, it, it was, whenever it was church time, there'd be, a, I would always be first in line. I would go early just to be first in line. I mean, it was just a way to get away and worship and with other people. It was, man, that was really happening in there. I'll tell you <laughs> for being in prison. And so it was, was that after that conversation with him or he yes. late, it's like just, put it out there to you, like, give me his words exactly. I really want to hear exactly again. You said it a couple times, but I just want it, I want to hear it very clearly, exactly like how, what he said to you and what that did to you. It was real simple. And I believe God had chosen that time
to call me into obedience. He calls us to salvation. That's what the word says. He calls us to obedience and he calls us into ministry. Mm-hmm. So when C.O. Cook, this simple, said, Tom, are you being obedient to God's word? It never dawned on me, this word that I'd probably, since that period of time, read, that was probably 2000 when I got to CMC or 2001. I had read that word since the late 70s, and it never dawned on me, even though it talked about obedience, that I'm supposed to be obedient to this word. And that's when I went to my bunk, and I just said, Lord, I'll be obedient. You just have to show me what to be obedient in. Mm -hmm. And that was the tongue and the conversation. James chapter 3, when it talked about the ship and the rudder. And then it says, brothers, we curse men. We praise God. I can't really. And then we curse men with the Brothers, this should not be. And it made me look at myself like a double-minded man. I'm going to the church. And then I'm having these conversations in the dorms that are inappropriate of the past, this and that. So that fell away. And then I began to make a covenant with my eyes. I got rid of any kind of pornographic Mm -hmm. material that I had, and I tore it up. I didn't give it away and pass the filth on. I got (laughs) rid of it. And then the lockers would be open, and they would have women with bikinis. So I began to make a covenant with my eyes and immediately break away from that not linger on that. And that's when the word came alive. It was like a veil. And then I got this hunger for the word that I couldn't wait to read it. And I began to see some doctrines here and there as I listened to pastors. And I began to actually see some of this stuff. And before I was reading it, and if the scripture sounded good, I just highlighted it. And that's all it was. And like I told you before, Romans 8.28 was a pivotal scripture in my life. It's the very first scripture after reading the word for 25, maybe closer to 30 years. First scripture I ever memorized. And that's because as I was in there, I was watching God began to use prison to bring me to obedience, to use me to minister. So Romans 8.28 began to become true in my life and I could see it working in my life rather than reading it on a page. Hey, all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called. That sounds good. No, I was living it. He was taking around, he was turning around what me, number one, and the enemy, which was working for my bad, He was now turning it around and using it to call me into obedience, into a closer relationship with him through his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's here's what I know to be true, right, for myself, is that, you know, this is the 18-inch journey, right, of going from knowing things about God and, you know, reading it, highlighting it on the page, you know, that's head, right? Right. And then for to it soaking down into my heart and then opening my heart to see and experience God, the reality of who he is that's being spoken of in Scripture, finding it, the reality of it in my life, right, experiencing it for myself. And when I, 
what I found is, so I resonate with that. That was, that's what happened, right? It began to happen because of, of the word that this awesome guard said to you. What I know to be true for my life is when that becomes my heart experience and it affects me, it, it, you know, that it affects how I, how I respond and interact with other people. And it becomes an experience like it, it affects the, my relationships. It affects how I treat people, which then becomes an ex, a God experience in their lives. So how did that experience that you were having in your heart, experiencing God, the reality of God for the first or for, you know, not the first time because we had that incredible moment, but like on a more ongoing basis, right? How did that affect your relationship with the people around you? Mm. How did that change? That's a good question. and It did change in a big way. I had a lot of brothers that were giving messages in the churches, like Big John, a big African-American guy that took me under his wing, missing front tooth. And this guy was the most gentle giant. And there was something about John and he would give me this big bear hug. He was like six foot four, but he was awesome. And these guys helped me grow, but they seemed to have places in the church and they would give messages and this, but for some reason, I don't know what it was about me, but inmates could see in me and see what happens is, is a lot of people, when they go into prison, they hide behind the Bible or they profess to be, but you're under scrutiny and they're watching you. So I guess in some way I was displaying something because next thing you know, as I'm making friends, I'm getting people coming to my bunk and sitting with me and telling me their problems. And we would open the Bible and I would talk to them and pray with them. And I didn't really see that with going on with Big John and these other brothers that I felt were more knowledgeable than me and everything. They were the ones teaching. They were in the church teaching and giving messages and everything. But this kind of thing happened to me. I had Asians. I had one guy come up to me that was going to give a message, and he wanted me to go over the message with him just to see what I thought. Wow. So, I mean... I've often asked the Lord, why me, Lord? What is, what, why me? But then I've heard, why not you? <laughs> you know, why not you? Yeah. You know, and, and uh, when I got out of prison, I kind of strayed some. It hasn't been a perfect walk. So I'm, I notice the more I'm surrendered and the more I'm seeking God, things happen. He puts people in my path. And he's done that now that I've had chances to minister, but there it was all the time. And I actually gave my first little message on the yard, and I was scared to death, and not a lot of people showed up. But it was on the very thing that we were talking about earlier, obedience, because that had made such an impression in my life obedience is such a key thing to our walk with the Lord and where our heart is that we even want to be obedient to his word is amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Obedience is, you know, from God's perspective is a lot different. I think when it, 
than when it comes to, like, say, obeying the government or obeying the law, right? When it comes to God, it's a matter of, of trust, of relational trust. You know, like, do, you tr- do we trust him that he has what's best for us? And if we do, then we're going to listen to what he says and do that because he knows, like, he's guiding us into a path of freedom, you know, and obedience is God saying, here's the path that is best for you. Walk this way and you will experience a life. You'll experience this incredible life. And us going, yes or no for that. Do I really believe what God's saying is true? And if I walk this way, I'll find freedom. I'll find love. That he really does love me more than anyone else does. And that was, that was the pivotal moment for you is that, that you said when you responded to that guard, C.O. Cook, is that? C.O. Cook. When you responded to him, to that question of, are you obeying what God says, basically, right? You said, you took an honest intake and said, well, no, not necessarily, but I want to and I will. And, and that just, that, that's the heart attitude of trust. It really is. And and you grew into that in this environment that was prison. Right there in prison, you learned in a tough circumstance to listen to, to God's voice and, and see that and trust him that he had what's best for you. And so you chose to listen because you, you believed that. You believed he knew what was best and you wanted to hear and obey whatever he said. I, I, I really resonate with the prayer you prayed because I found I prayed that in some of the most pivotal moments of my life, and I think it's an ongoing prayer that I want to constantly pray. And that was, God, I don't know how to obey you. You show me. You show me what to do, and I'll do it. Yet I think that there is nothing more humble, that, you know, uh, when it comes to following God. There's nothing more... There's not a, a more humble prayer than saying, I have no idea how to walk with you. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how to trust you or what to do. But you show me. You tell me what it is, and I'll, I'll do it. There's, those were the moments for me that things shifted. Mm-hmm. Every time I prayed that prayer, and I can, I can remember those moments. Right. When I said, God, I have no idea what you want me to do here. And you show me and I'll do it. And that led me and my family to India. Mm-hmm. That led me and my family to move here. And those are the moments that have changed my life. And that sounds like what happened to you in prison. That was the moment that changed your life, that kind of a prayer. You're 100% right. It changed my life completely. And it's be- because of that, is really of who I am now, that life-changing. But this is what I will say. When I began to be obedient, really began, and it wasn't perfect all the time. I was more free. I had experienced joy and peace and exhilaration that I've never experienced before. All in that period of time in prison. When you would think, how can you experience that in prison? You're supposed to be, I hate it here. But no, 
No, I didn't hate it. I woke up every day thankful, exhilarated, on my knees, couldn't wait to listen to Charles Stanley and read the word. I had a program, <laughs> you know. And it's funny, all through this whole journey, God provided in a big way. Mm-hmm. I had the best jobs. I worked at PIA Glove Factory and learned how to make leather gloves and do the fingers. I, I learned all that, so I was saving money, preparing to, and then to be out. be out. This was in CMC, so I'm down to my last six, and it's ticking down. And then the last two years when I was 49, I actually got on a fire crew, wildland firefighter. That was the most, one of most exhilarating, and I felt like I was given something back to the communities when we would walk through to do structure protection and people would come out, offer us water and thank you. I felt like I had a meaning and a purpose that I was doing. And I remember one night we were out in, uh, um, in, a, in a forest area, Los Padres National Forest on a huge fire. It was three o'clock in the morning and we had pulled into an area that the fire went through and our fire captain was pretty cool, and he said, hey, a couple of you guys want to go up to that mountain that you can keep watch. So me and another brother, another Christian friend, his last name was Young, too, Scott Young. <laughs> Scott and Tom Young. We took our sleeping bags, our fire lunches, and our little radios. I had a little radio with the head. And I remember laying up there, me and him, way out. Nothing around, not a house. You can see hot spots burning. There I am laying in a sleeping bag with my headphones on, listening to Charles Stanley under the stars. <laughs> I mean, it was it was such an adventure that the Lord allowed me to take toward the end. And what that also did is during the winter, we would do grade projects, no fires going on. So we're in the public, in the city, so when I got out of prison after being locked up for almost 12 years, the transition was so smooth. It didn't go from an abrupt almost 12 years to now you're thrust out. I had already been seeing people going through Grover Beach. And another little thing I want to throw in here is when I got out, I went to Grover Beach to stay with my mom and Paul. Paul had this house. They were staying there. And my mom had dementia, and I saw her sitting there, and she looked skinny and frail, and she wasn't, the caregiver was not feeding her right. And uh, I remember I fell asleep that night, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and I said, sobbing, I said, Lord, Lord, if there's any way I can take care of my mom in her last day, Lord, please, Lord. You know, I was distressed. I was distressed for my mom. So I had to go back down to Studio City. I could spend the night. I had to go back where all the friends and the drugs and where I grew up. Two weeks later, I got a phone call. The caregiver had stole some money, stole a credit card. But you know what? Tom, you want to come up here and take care of mom and Paul? You know, and you're going to have a room. You'll get paid. All this, so I went from really having nothing getting out, I saved some money, 
to going now and being able to take care of my mom and take care of Paul. I'd never had a cell phone, nothing. And I got a cell phone. That was amazing. You know, and, but I remember cruising around in the fire truck too, going through shell beach. We cleaned up along the fences and stuff. And, and I remember looking around saying, I just said, and I wasn't asking the Lord or anything like that. I just said, Lord, you know, I'd like to live up here. I was just going through that in my head. This is, I like, I like Shell Beach and I like the area. And, so, and I just, man, I'd like to live around here. Well, it wasn't two weeks after I was out. I was living up here and taking care of my beloved mother that had treated me so well and was the best mom in the world. She died in my arms. I was able to crawl up with her on the bed and talk in her ear and say, Mom, we're, we love you and we're going to miss you. And then she took two more breaths and died with me rather than in a home. Right. Yeah. And then Paul, too. I was able to be with him and his son when Paul passed. And they asked me to pray over Paul right when he passed. What a privilege and an honor the Lord allowed me to have to be able to do that. All of that, that path to freedom and those experiences came from a moment of choosing obedience. Correct. 100% correct. Kim, what, what are you hearing all of this? Oh, man. I was sitting there. <laughs> I so resonate with just how much obedience changes changes so much. I, you know, I keep thinking about even just when we were meeting yesterday and me have, making a random comment about, like, I can't cheat and, like, just give you my notebook with my journal that has all my thoughts written down because that's easy. Yeah. It's sometimes easier for me to get that, but God's been like, no, you're not doing that. You're not going to read out of your journal. You're going to, to speak it out, you know, and, and experience it because, you know, for me, that's always the hardest part because, you know, whatever you speak out, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for me, that's another thing I can tend to avoid experiencing um, just with my past and then the abuse and the trauma and everything that went through I never spoke of it to anyone because that make it real and then I'd have to deal with it so when you when you're talking about how much obedience impacts I'm just like yeah I get it because even just you know driving home yesterday I was like so much more relieved I was like I think I was like I think that's the first time in a while I'd gone home going like I think I actually said everything I needed to say for a change. Yeah. And like that took such a weight off, you know, and that's the beautiful thing about obedience is that really just, it frees you so much. And it's so crazy how much we can fight against it. God's like, but this is my best for you. Like, you need to see his father's heart, you know, and he's like, he's like, I'm not doing this to be a killjoy. He's like, I'm doing this because I love you. And, you know, that invitation, even though it was hard, like, I was like, oh, but there's so much more peace. Like, I woke up feeling relaxed and refreshed and, like, not stressed out about it. 100%. You said that that's our mindset. When we think of obedience, a lot of the times our view of God is killjoy. <laughs> But when we obey him and trust him, we find his real joy. Yeah. 100%. It's just the opposite. Mm -hmm. And that's what people think of coming to 
to the Lord that they're going to have to give up things and it's going to be that he's a killjoy. But obedience changed my life. And I'm not going to say that since that experience in prison, I've been perfectly obedient because I've been in rebellion too. But I'm quick to turn from that too and realize But I remember Charles Stanley once said, whenever we step out into obedience, no matter what it is, blessing always follows and the feeling you've done the right thing. Something inside saying I was obedient. But God, I've been obedient, talking to some, and walked away in tears and felt exhilarated. I've ever experienced the satisfaction because, you know, we've got to, sometimes we've got to make a kind of a split. Some ministers might not want us to be obedient, but we've got to say, but, but wait a minute. And, you know, and that check in the spirit sometimes, you know, like, and then I've even known, and even was disobedient. And then I'm on my knees, Lord, forgive me, I see, you know. Because, you know, when we're in rebellion and we're being disobedient, I think sometimes feeling separated or spiritually dry and you're not experiencing, the weight of that can turn us and get us back to going to being obedient. That's why that happens. Yeah. It's like when we go astray, the good shepherd's patient, but he leads us gently back into the flock. And how? Sometimes he's put weight on me or you know, conviction or whatever, but it always causes me that lack you know, that peace and joy and being out of fellowship with the Lord. You're not losing your salvation, but you sort of, you're sort of out because you're being rebellious and you're turning away. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, tell us who God is, right? One of those qualities is joy. And so when we trust that God really is not a killjoy, but a real joy, that he really is joy, and we, in those split decision, decisions, it comes down to, do I really trust God has what's best for me? Do I really trust that he is my joy? And that if I listen to what he said, I'm, gonna, I'm walking into joy, not away from it, right? And what, the moments we don't, I love how you said that. It's like, when I don't, I, I'm learning to quickly go, you know, when I come out of alignment with that. He, if he is joy and I go my own way, I've just left joy. And you're learning to come quickly back to God and experience who he is again. And I think this is the beauty of God. Like one of the other um, qualities of God that's in there. Kim knows what I'm about to say, right? What's <laughs> oh, the word? patience. Yes, that is correct. He knows. I do. But if God is also patience, that means... His discipline looks a little different than a lot of the times we think it does. He's not sitting there hammering us and punishing us. His discipline is, okay, you've you've walked away from my joy. I'll stay with you, follow you the whole way, and wait for you for the pain of being out of my joy to become greater, that sense of pain of being away from my joy to be greater than your fear of obeying. And there comes a point where that pain gets greater 
that's a tipping point where the pain of not experiencing God's joy and running from him becomes greater than my fear of the unknown. What if I, what will happen if I obey him? What do I have to give up, right? So there's this fear of the unknown in obeying God, but then, so we run, and then we don't experience God's joy, and he patiently waits for that pain to grow until it's like unbearable, like, okay, I'll obey, because the fear of the unknown is less than the pain of not having his joy, and we turn back. And that's all God ever wants for us. There's no lightning bolts. He's not up there like Zeus in the Greek mythology waiting to strike us down with lightning bolts. He's, he's, he's not up there anywhere. He's here, present, in our midst, walking right beside us saying, here's all of who I am. Patience, joy, love, kindness, gentleness, peace, you know, self-control, goodness, and faithfulness. This is who I am, and I'm here for you to give all of this, all of who I am, I'm giving it to you. I am pouring out my patience. I'm giving you my patience. That's who I am, and I want you to have me. And when you walk away from that, I am staying right with you, right right there until you turn around. So all I'm asking is I understand you run, and Kurt, Tom, Tim, I understand you run, and I I understand that you don't, you as a finite being don't understand my infinite patience, my infinite love. It's foreign to you. It's, to know that it never ends and has no limits is something a person with limitations doesn't understand. What we don't understand, we fear. And what we fear, we run from. God's like, I get it. I get it. You can't grasp my infinite patience. So, you don't understand it, you fear it and run. And I'm just saying, come back quickly, because that's what I have for you. I just have joy, patience. And I don't want you to suffer, you know, through it. Now, are there going to be hard times? Yes. But if we look to Jesus, if we trust that he really is joy, we'll look to find him. Where are you in the midst of our hard times? And we can find joy despite the circumstances that his character is there even in the darkest circumstances mm. if we'll just trust him enough to ask, where are you? And when we do, little by little, we experience the joy. And so that moment for me, I'm just thinking of your story. Here's a guy who was running and out of alignment with God's joy. And yet, and so like that led to prison, right? And yet, in a physical prison, it was really just representative of what was happening. The prison was inside. And in the midst of that prison, you experienced freedom. <clears throat> and, and began to grow in trusting that God, that obeying God was the way to freedom, was the path to freedom. And that's what you experienced. The second half of prison was freedom. And God's like, now I'm preparing you for greater freedom out there. And here you are sitting here on the central coast, like because you've been obedient, he gives you more and more freedom. And now you find yourself on the side of the road, like in a fire truck, while you're still in prison, quote, unquote, right? Still in prison, experiencing this beauty and going, God, I, I would really love to live here. And God's like, yeah. 
this is what I have for you. This is the joy and the freedom I have for you. And you get out and you find yourself there. With, <laughs> with my own mom. place. With yeah. Your, yeah, with your mom. And, and, being, and not only experiencing freedom for yourself, but then in that freedom getting to serve others and finding this great freedom and giving myself away to other people. That, that is amazing. All that happened because you chose to obey and you found obedience as a way to freedom. 100%. 100%. Well said. And I just want to back up just a little. Yeah, yeah. When I, before I went to prison and I was doing all the drugs and doing everything I did and all that, and we had cars, I was more in bondage and enslaved to all that. And here I am in prison. And by being obedient, I felt freer, more peace, more to being used by God than ever when I was free and out in the world. I had more joy and, and was excited about the future and was free of heroin and cocaine and stealing and lying and cheating. And I look back and I think about some of these things and how could it, it's like in a parallel world or something. It was like, you know, it wasn't even me. It was like a dream. It, it's almost surreal that that even happened. And it seems like God has speeded up time, too. Like when I began to, for 25 to 30 years, I was reading the Word. and But once I began to go to the Scriptures and I began to dig, I started taking it. In, in a shorter period of time, what I had taken in was actually re- could retain and understand. <laughs> it was like time speeded that up and yeah. made up for all that time that I. It's hard to explain exactly, but it was like he opened my understanding. And it's like Big John used to say. Tom, they need an operation of the heart. That's what he used to say, an operation of the heart. And it was a heart condition. And I still have to constantly pray because I can almost feel it when it happens to me. God, soften my heart, Lord. Humble me, Lord. Humble me. And I remember another thing C.O. Cook had said later on after the Tom, are you being obedient? He said, Tom, Ask God to break you down and remake you. Ask him to break you down. And I still pray that prayer. Break me down, Lord. Break me down. Break that pride down. Because that's what you're saying is that humility, to tr- it takes humility to trust that God's way is better that way. Like, I mean, when you really think about it, who knows better? The infinite God of the universe who's been here forever or, like, who's going to know better, him or me, my path? I've been around for a measly 50-something years, right? But it takes humility. That, so, like, saying that that way, when I don't trust him to go my own way, what a bunch of stinking pride that is. That I think I know better? So trust and obedience, you know, trust leads to obedience, but trust comes from a place of humility. I recognize that, that I am just poor, really. And I have a limited viewpoint, and God knows better than I do. And that's that's what it takes to trust, and trust is what's needed for obedience. 
I saw it. I, I heard. <laughs> I heard the wheels. No, just Kim. just when you were talking about time speeding up and how much God's been doing, it just that verse popped into my head. Um, I'll redeem the years that the locusts have eaten. Yeah. And it's just so totally what He's done. It's what He does for all of us. I think back to the first 19 years of my life when I was pretty well asleep for most of it because that was how I coped. And I'm like, I'm like, wow, I've really only been awake for the last 17, <laughs> you know. And just to see everything God has done and how he's redeemed, you know, he always, that's his whole thing. He's all about redemption. And, what is, and think about this, you know, like these are terms we swing around in yeah. church, right, and swing around in our Christian talk. What is redemption really? What is, what is the act of redemption? What, is it, what is redeem, does redemption do? It, well, I mean, we talk about it. it takes what the enemy meant for evil and it turns it to something beautiful. Yeah. You know, we start off with a fistful of ashes and we give it to God and it, you know, he says, it's, he, you know, he gives us joy. He gives us things that we never thought, real life, you yeah. know, takes off the grave clothes and gives us clothes that actually <laughs> fit. I think you're like Chuck E. Cheese. You know, the redemption mm-hmm. center at Chuck E. Cheese. So you go play these games and you get a bunch of these stupid little t- tickets. And you yeah. put on the paper. Yeah, right? And you take this wad of useless, worthless paper and you trade it in and they give you some cheap little prize. But it's still better than the paper, right? And how much God's redemption is like that. We take our wasted trash of a life. Filth. Right. Filthy yeah. life. And we just go, it's it's more worthless than that paper that we're trading in at Chuck E. Cheese, and we hand it over to God, and he gives us all of him, joy, patience, kindness. That's redemption. And, man, when we experience that, it could have been 40 years of a worthless life, right? And only two living in that kind of life, it redeems all of those years. Those And, like, those two years of... Like giving, having turned our life over to God, our worth, all of those other four years, that's redemption. And, and so it feels like, right, like it's just that the things we experience in that short of a time, it's just like, it feels like it's just sped up. Like all the things we're learning, all the experiences we're having. For me, I, I'm, I'm really resonating with that, what you guys are talking about right now. It reminds me of how powerful this last year has been since, you know, COVID hit and how, it, you know, in a lot of ways it feels like, oh, this whole world, like, we can't do the things we used to do. We can't enjoy the things we used to enjoy. Can't be around the people we used to be around. And it, it's really slowed everything down. And there's the gift. Because what I found is, I really relate to that gift of the slowdown for the, that the world's experiencing because for me in the last uh, three or four years, what I've come to, um, what the doctors have discovered is I have a neurological disease that is destroying the muscles in my legs, arms, and throat. And you can see a cane sitting over there by the door. Wow. And uh, I can barely get up and down out of chair. Like getting out of, off the toilet, okay, we can go there. But getting off the toilet is a really hard thing for me. 
so low to the ground. The lower I get to the ground, the harder it is for me to get up. Going up and down stairs, like I really relate to uh, Kung Fu Panda. If you've ever seen that oh. cartoon where he says, my old enemy. Or my stairs. old nemesis, stairs. That's me. Every time I say that quote all the time when I'm looking up a flight of stairs. But I say this all the time. I say, I, I, you know, like, there's going to come a point if God doesn't heal me physically, I'll be in a wheelchair. But here's what I say all the time. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. I wouldn't. But I also wouldn't trade this for anything. Because just like COVID and we've been forced to slow down, I used to be a really super energetic, hyperactive guy, always on the go. And now I can't be that, but in that slowdown, I found I notice God. I'm more aware of God's presence. In this last year especially, in all of the slowing down, God has made himself more known to me, and he's made me, what's happening in my own heart and mind, more noticeable to me. And I'm more aware of when I'm getting out of alignment with him, and I'm letting anxiety speak to me instead of God's voice. When I'm listening to those lies of shame that the enemy still whispers into me rather than God's voice, I noticed that much sooner in the slowdown and the stillness and the quiet. And I'm much more quick to give that to God and come back into alignment of obedience to what he says that he has for me, joy. And all of my 52 years, you could have all the other 51 if I could have this year in the middle of struggling with the disease, I'll take this year. I'll take this year. Because I have found that kind of redemption this year. Wow. This year is like that speeding up process. I have, I have known God more, way more intimately in one year than I have in the 51 before it. And I've walked with Jesus for 30 years. So I'll take this year. In COVID, and I'll take what's happening with my body because I have, I would rather have the sense of God's presence, the awareness of God's presence, and the peace and the joy I'm experiencing now. You know, then all the other years come back. People go, I wish I, I wish I could go back to high school and live to what I know now. <sighs> no thanks. I'll take now. I'll take now. And all of the struggles and all of the gifts. Because it's redemptive. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, that experience is God's joy. So I get I get all of what you're saying. I really resonate with that. So what you're saying is if you were healthy and there was no COVID and this wasn't happening to your body and you didn't have the peace and joy and all that, would it really be worth it? No. If See, because what would you be without that? Yeah, if I didn't have that kind of awareness. If I didn't have that kind of awareness of God, I, I don't want to run fast and be able to <laughs> climb upstairs in three seconds. What is that, what is that worth if, if climbing upstairs takes longer, but I, I, I'm, more, I'm more present with God in that climb and struggle up those stairs? That's way more important to me. And just think, if that does happen, and you do end up in the wheelchair, think of what kind of testimony God's going to give you and how you're going to be able to use that. That's not going to be for nothing. 
Well, okay, I'm going to tell you something that I haven't really told a lot of people, and I've definitely never said it live, like, you know, in a recorded podcast. Uh, but, in fact, it's funny because when I first got healed, when it started, the first season of this podcast, I had a co-host named Chris, and he, he and I would do this together. And we were getting off of one of the recording one of the episodes, and we were recording with a guest. And when it was done, Chris and I stayed on. It was like, Kurt, I'm struggling to... Something happened during the recording of this podcast, and I'm struggling with whether I am meant to share this with you. And, I, and this was like over a year ago. And I said, ah, please share. <laughs> If, if it's difficult, I still want to hear it because I'd rather know. And he says, well, well, while you were talking at one point, I just saw a clear vision of you in a wheelchair. And there was a line of people waiting to be healed by you. And he said, I said, God, that's just a weird irony that you are using Kurt to heal all these people when he is not being healed. And he goes, that just seems strange to me. And if I remember correctly, he's, what God said to him was, this is what it takes for him to be my conduit of healing. And I get it now. I get it. Because that's the place of stillness and slowness and poverty of spirit, humility, that it takes to be a conduit of, of that patience and joy and healing power of God to others. And if that's what it takes, I'm in. I think of Joni Erickson. I was just going to mention her. She just come. I was going to bring her up. Yeah. Here's a woman in a wheelchair. Every time, I can't think of a time where I listen to one of her recordings. And I didn't hear joy bleeding out of her. She's awesome. I think of the, still the times of, of the stories she told of raising all this money for, to send wheelchairs to Eastern Bloc countries that couldn't afford them. Here's a woman who used mightily of God that, that since she was a teenager didn't walk a step for the rest of her life, right? I had no idea if even she's alive. And I'm like, if that could be true of her, why couldn't it be true of me? If if I end up in a wheelchair, then God wants to use that. And I am so, like, right where I'm right now. I'm not worried about that because I'm learning to just be present with him and be still with him, you know. And, and, if, and if he can do what he did in the last year in the kind of circumstances this world that I have found, we found ourselves in, right, Whatever happens, happens, and he's going to be there in that. And that's what I hear in your story, too, Tom. It's just how when you learn to trust him and obey what he said, it, it, it brought freedom, no matter what the circumstances look like. You know? No matter what that look, even though to the outside world look like you're in prison. So do you think we could apply... To Johnny Erickson Tata, Romans 8:28. God use that for her good. 
do we think we if you ended up in a wheelchair that God doesn't have a plan? And see, that's the way he's almost confounds because here his this your friend's vision. You're in a wheelchair, you haven't been healed, but all these people are lining up to be healed. And people would say, I don't understand that. That's when we've got to trust God, that we might not understand it either, but it's that where no matter what, we have to trust that he knows best and that we don't. And I pray all the time. I say, Lord, deliver me from myself, Lord. Show me what it is you would. I don't want to make decisions, Lord. I know what that. And I have to say, deliver me from myself, you know? Yeah. It's really just a form of the same prayer. It's like, I don't know what's going on. God, you make it clear in our head. I love that. That's just such a simple prayer and a humble, trusting prayer. You make it clear in our head. You know, when I prayed, I said, honestly, Lord, I don't know what to be obedient in. Show me what you want me to be obedient, Lord, in, and I'll do it, I said. Yeah. And then when he did, which was James chapter 3, I did. Yes, and I started started mentally now, catching my God, I heard Charles Stanley say once, pray that when something's going to come up, that God will show you. And so now I was beginning to catch this stuff before it come out. And then when the inappropriate conversations began, well, I got to go. I would just excuse myself and get out of that kind of stuff. And then there was another little pivotal moment because I had been a thief through all those years. Thief petty thefts from stores. I had an incident in the prison, and this was about a year after I had begun to be obedient, and I was kind of learning more and hanging around with mature Christians. You can go to canteen, and you get a canteen list prior, and you fill it out, you turn it in, and then they call that dorm, and you stand out there, and they get all your stuff ready. Well, it was my turn, and you've got to use the exact amount. They don't give change. You can't have money. I go up there to get my stuff and I got my laundry bags and I'm putting it in there and he says, Mr. Young, you got like $3.20 left, whatever it was. And I said, okay, give me this, this, and this. So all this stuff, he started pushing all this stuff and immediately I noticed that he was pushing out a lot more than my $3.20. I don't know if he got confused. And this was a free man. This store was run by a man that would come in and then inmates would work in and just get the things off the shelf. So it was like there was a pivotal moment. Remember old Tom that was a thief and liar? And so I could either take that stuff, saying, thinking in my head, I didn't steal it. He's pushing it out to me, but I knew it wasn't mine. And everybody in the, most people in the prison got this attitude getting over on the state. They blame the state for their, so they steal, do whatever they can, underhanded. And so it's like time slowed down. That was gum. Time slowed down. And I looked at the stuff and it was like a crossroads. And I had to make a decision. So I said, sir, I don't know if you realize this or not, but you've given me too much stuff. And I pushed it back in. 
And he said, thank you, Mr. Young. Thank you, because it would have messed up his inventory and all that. And he gave me what I should have had. And then I walked away with my bags and I stopped and I looked up and tears came down my eyes because I really could realize that I was able to turn away from something that I had been doing for so many years and say, no, I'm not. Even though I didn't even actually steal it, I knew it wasn't mine. And I was able to resist that temptation. I just started thanking the Lord because now I could really see the Holy Spirit's working in me. I'm changing day by day, the tongue. And the, and now I've had this. So the things that I used to do began to sort of fall away here and fall away there, all through obedience. Yeah, that's awesome. And that, that, that is it, man. Obedience is the path to freedom. And that's what you've experienced all through your journey. And I would love if we could close this out. There are a lot of people out there, right, that need to, to make that choice, to choose obedience, trust God, humbly, humble themselves, trust God, walk in obedience to what he says and, and so that they can experience that same freedom that you've experienced. And since this is your story, I would love for you to pray over people to, to just to, forgot to like, for that experience of freedom and and for them to really trust God and walk in obedience, if you would, you would pray that. Well, I just want to say first that obedience is not a salvation experience. It comes from being saved, and it's a fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. So with that said, yeah. Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now, Lord. Kurt, Kim, and myself, Lord, we just with one heart, just pray for anybody out there that's struggling with disobedience or just having a hard time being obedient and just the promptings of the Spirit, just everything. I would just pray, Lord, Lord, just begin to work in their heart and, and reveal that to them, obedience in a real way, Lord, and help them to accomplish that. Empower them, Lord, to do that. And Lord, Lord, if anybody's out there now, Lord, as they hear this that doesn't know the Lord, Lord, I just pray that you would begin that work in their heart in John chapter 6 of the drawing, Lord, to draw them to you that they can come to know you as Lord and Savior and experience freedom and obedience, Lord. Obedience is everything, and you taught me that, Lord. So I just pray for anybody struggling or if you feel like after hearing anything we've talked about now that God might be calling you to obedience, Lord, I just pray that they would heed that call and they would determine in their mind that I need to be obedient. It, you'll never regret it. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. And you'll experience God in a new way. And it, and it also shows the condition of your heart that you're truly seeking God and that you want to be obedient. So I, I just pray that everybody listening, anybody that's struggling, Lord, would come to you in obedience and make that choice. I'm going to be obedient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just pray that. Yeah, the authority you've given us, God. Jesus, you've given us this authority. 
is yours. And so we pray in that authority you've given to us in the power you've given to us through the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Tom, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for being on this with us. I know I sort of kind of threw in a little bit of a, you know, coming to the Lord kind of thing and the drawing, you know, and it's just like you say you're chosen. You're also drawn. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that salvation is initiated by God. And yes, we have to respond, but it's in Thessalonians chapter one where they're talking about, Paul's talking about, we know you heard the word, but the words also came in power and yeah. the Holy Spirit and, and conviction. Yeah. And I'm just kind of, I haven't memorized that scripture yet. Yeah. So you get that outward calling where you hear the gospel and you have to hear it. But there's also got to be that effectual call where God begins to draw us. And I heard a pastor say too, you know, and I always love this analogy that, the heart's like stony ground, and before a seed can be planted in good soil, the Lord's got to do a work in the heart first. So that seed can be planted in fertile soil. So salvation's all of him, and yes, we have to respond, And but when you know you're being drawn, he'll let you, you'll know something different, something's... <laughs> got to respond <laughs> well that's the thing right response god does the work he does the, it's his job to do to be the, the one who calls but it's our job to respond which is obedience <laughs> to that call yeah but i'm going to take it a little further in second uh ephesians chapter two it says and i heard a pastor preaching on this the other day and i really that we were dead in our trespasses and sins so in a way, God's got to even help us to be able to respond because if you're dead spiritually, it's hard to respond to spiritual things. You can make a superficial decision in your mind, sort of, you know, but to truly respond from the heart, and of course we know we have to know, see, in the churches, there's so much stuff going, some of this easy belief of the, we there has to be conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Bible says that he came to convict the world. You have to see yourself for what you really are to come to God for the right reasons. If you hear someone saying, well, your marriage will be healed and this is going to happen. And that's why so many people walk away because they make a decision or something happens and none of that. We have to, there's got to be conviction of, man, I'm filthy and I'm a sinner. And, you know, I need to be saved. From what? From judgment. Well, I mean, even what you're saying, though, is true in the fact of you say, you know, it's God's power to draw us. And really what obedience is, is receiving what he has for us. It's the free gift. You know, and so it's receiving his power to be able to respond to him. Incorrect. It's opening up and just letting him in, right? I say this all the time. John 1.12 says, for those who receive him, for those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so, yeah, God is there calling us and he's giving us all the power we need. The, the point of obedience for us is to trust him enough to open up and receive it. 
I agree 100%. That's a good one. I like that, that he gives us the power to respond, but we've got to receive that. Yeah, we've got to open up and trust him enough to, you know, and that's our job is to open up and let him in. Uh, you know, when we open up ourselves to receive all of himself, those two connect, you know? So God is always giving all of himself to us. It's up to us. Are we going to open up and trust him enough to open up our hearts to him and, and receive? you got a way of putting things, because that's true. And we can be kind of world, and it, we can be rebellious. There's a lot of people that have heard that they're, I'm no. Yeah. No. And they're prideful and yeah. like, you know, I hate to say it. My boss, he smirked and he almost, you know, and I would rather go to hell. And I say, Mike, you don't know what you're saying. <laughs> I say, someday you're, you're going to stand before the Lord and you're going to weep and cry and you're going to realize how foolish the things you say or saying are. I have a friend of mine who was claimed to be an atheist here just in the last few years has come to faith, you know, and still watching that journey like we all are. They said, you know, there were times when you would be talking and I would just look down at you, like, and just look at your faith in God as a crutch. And he goes, now I've come to realize I had a crutch too. It was through addiction that I was know in into and now I realize that you needed that crutch but of God and but so did I. All of us do. I was I my pride kept me from seeing my own poverty and neediness. And and so that's what it takes. Humility brings trust, as we keep saying, and trust leads to obedience and obedience leads to freedom. And here's where we're out of time. But I want to thank you for your trust and obedience to come on this show. Thank you. You didn't know what you were going to face. This was obedience. This was obedience. And, and trust. And what an experience. Yeah. I've enjoyed it. I've learned a lot, too. Me, uh, yeah. You did, too. Yeah. And you, yeah. Like, like, you caused me to share something I've never shared on here before. A few things, even, especially the story of that vision that Chris shared with me. So, powerful stuff, all that came out of your obedience. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm honored to be here and to be able to do this with you guys. It's been an experience my first time. Yeah, well, maybe not your last. Okay, okay. all right, all right. Maybe in the future, right? Yeah. If God's so willing, if God calls... <laughs> That's right. We'll respond. That's right.